our entire study here in Philippians is called How to Think. How to Think, because God gives us a lot of information, a lot of help when it comes to our brains. So let's pray and we'll get started. Jesus, I thank you so much that you give us your word to transform our lives. And Lord, it's not just a magical book, but your Holy Spirit empowers these words. You promise to use these words to change us and to bless us so that we can know you, so we can follow you and serve you. And Lord, I pray that your words today would deeply impact us. And I pray that we would be convicted of how we've thought about suffering and thought about the rough times in our lives. And Lord, we would surrender to you and surrender all that we have and all our preconceptions and the way that we think this world should go. I pray we would lay it down before you and simply pick up our cross and follow you, Jesus. We do love you and we do want to love you more. We want to be used. We want to be used to, to, to share with this world that they don't have to go to hell. They can receive your grace in Jesus Christ, your son. So Lord, we, we pray that you would use this Bible study to, to change everything about how we think about suffering. In your name we pray, amen. I thought you said this letter was all about joy. Well, it is. But first, we need to understand that suffering is a reality in this world that we live in. Anyone want to argue that point? That no one really suffers? No, we all know. But we can have joy in the middle, in the midst of our suffering, if we learn how to think rightly about suffering. We can use our mind to be our slave, to do what we want it to do, so that we can actually have the joy of the Lord when it comes into suffering. Just, I want you to go with me on a little trip. Would you all close your eyes and imagine that we're walking through a beautiful park? We'll say it's Wash Park on a day when there's no dogs or people. It's just sun and grass, just beautiful. The birds are tweeting, and we're just walking barefoot through the grass. And it's just peaceful. You have light breeze. You can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. And then all of a sudden, these angry 11 men, 11 of the angriest, nastiest men you've ever men start, met start to chase you. And they start pushing you down, yelling at you. And it seems like they're trying to take your head off for no reason. You can open your eyes. Was that peaceful? Any person would be surprised and probably not respond too well to that situation. You'd kind of have a little bit of a panic attack. Eleven stinky, grown, ugly men chasing you. But what if I were to tell you that, those were, that you merely walked into a football game? you might respond differently. You might have a different mindset. You might line up with your team. You might go for the goal. You might listen to the game plan. 
those same guys who you thought were crazy and psychotic are now just your competition. And they, they are a way now for you to just test your skills or your will to succeed. Suffering. Oh, I just saw Lonnie and Rhea. I haven't seen you guys in so long. I love you. Oh, I miss you. So good to see you. Sorry, I never do that, but I was thinking about you on the way to church today. I was like, it's been so long, and I was just bummed out because I haven't seen you in a while. I thought you were in Guam. Anyway. <clears throat> wow. Okay. Suffering like we've been suffering without you. Oh. Suffering is... Is, it, it can be a test. But when it takes you by surprise, you're like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh. What, what's going on? Who are these stinky, angry men? But when you have a plan, when you know what to think and how to line up, how to listen to your game plan, your coach, it becomes a test of your skills, of who you are on the inside. At the Nicene Council, which was an important church meeting in the 4th century, there were 318 delegates or pastors in the world at that time, basically. And of the 318, fewer than 12 didn't, or had not lost an eye, lost a hand, or have a limp or leg ma- lamed by torture for their Christian faith. That's the team we're on. Suffering is supposed to be expected. We'll get into that in a little while. But I want to review our, our theme verse for this entire book of Philippians, which it actually isn't even in Philippians. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Our mind is, needs to be renewed and not think the way the world tells us to think, but to think the way God tells us to think. And suffering, this is, I'm going to give you the truth right now that kind of governs our whole study today. Suffering doesn't hinder the work of God in your life. In fact, it expedites it. Suffering does not hinder the work of God in your life. It expedites it. So let's read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 30, which is where we're studying today. We'll read the whole section, and then we'll go back and and tackle each part. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know 
that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Labor, so excuse me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy of your faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Again, suffering does not hinder the work of God in your life, it expedites it. All right, so we're going to read the first couple of verses again and, and kind of tackle those and see what they teach us. Verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. Well, the first time that Paul went to Philippi, do you remember where he ended up? In prison, right? Within just a little while, he's, he's walking through the city and this girl is possessed by a demon and Paul gets super annoyed and so he says, come out of her. I love that part. And then the, the guy who owned this girl like sued him and he ends up in jail and he gets beaten. But what happened is there was an earthquake, a miraculous earthquake that miraculously opened the entire jail so that all the prisoners could get out. But Paul didn't walk out. He just sat there. And the prison guard, he's supposed to die if any prisoner escapes, so he's about to shove himself with a sword. And Paul's like, no, no, don't do that. We're all here. We're just chilling. And the prison guard's like, what is different about you? This is crazy. How can I be saved? And, and Paul explains to him, he gets saved, the whole family gets saved, Paul gets out. Miraculous, amazing his story about jail. God broke him out. So he's writing the Philippians a letter years later now. And the Philippians might be thinking, why doesn't God just break you out again? You're just sitting in jail now. Did you do something wrong to make God upset with you? 
Did, did you do something to disqualify yourself from serving God? Because now God has abandoned you to just rot in prison? What is going on? And this gets us to our first thinking lesson. If on your sheets of paper, your note sheets, the thinking lesson number one is that suffering is real. Suffering is real. Paul here, he doesn't deny that he is suffering. In fact, he's pretty surprised at how it's turning out. He says, I want you to know that all these terrible things have actually turned out, they've worked out so that more people could hear the gospel than if I was running around like a crazy person through this city. He said, more people have heard the gospel for me being in prison than if I was free. He's pretty shocked about it, actually. Some people think that we need to ignore our suffering. To minimize our trials, some people get this, are even embarrassed when they have suffering happen in their lives. They feel ashamed. They shut down. They hide themselves away until they're able to put their life back together again. Paul says, my chains are in Christ. In Christ. In other words, he's saying the only reason I'm suffering is because I believe in Jesus and I'm following him. And if I were to choose to deny Jesus, my suffering would go away and they would release me right away. You know, the same thing is probably true in your life. The reason why you're suffering is because you've chosen to follow Jesus. Now, does that mean you should choose to stop following Jesus? So suffering is real. It's something that each one of us who choose to follow Jesus, we sign up for it. You cannot get out of it. Because God allows it and he ordains it. Now, this sounds crazy. This is where you get the very self-righteous atheists who comes up and says, you, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering. And I hate him. Even though I don't believe in him, I still hate him. There are no atheists, but we'll talk about that in another time. I get super fired up about that. It doesn't sound like the God we grew up in America learning about. Because the God of the Bible actually plans out your life. And suffering, get this, is a huge part of that plan. Right now, in this world. In the world to come? No. It's wiped away. But in this world that you live in, inhabit right now, suffering is a part of the plan. Now I want to read to you something from Malcolm Muggeridge in a book called Homemade. He says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on the experiences that at the time seemed especially uh, desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction, 
and not through happiness. He says everything that means anything to him after 75 years happened through affliction. Is that right, Kurt? Is that how it works when you're that old? Okay. (laughs) 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 Suffering, then, is not just a waste of time. Suffering is not a waste of time. God wants to use suffering in your life. And guess what? You don't get to argue with him about it. That's the play call. You're on a team. You may have been surprised when you were wandering through the park and found yourself on a team all of a sudden. But hey, you're on the team. And you need to line up with your team and run the play that's called. If you go a different direction, you're going to smack into someone's butt and butt fumble. It's not good. Ask Mark Sanchez. Well, if you don't know the play, you're going to be embarrassed. And the play call, unfortunately, is suffering. What? I don't like that play call. Well, you're not the coach. Your team is depending on you, and so we get to thinking lesson number two, which is suffering is not primarily about you. Suffering is not primarily about you. Now, yes, you are the one that's involved, so you might think it's all about you, but when we step back, we can see that suffering is not primarily about you. Paul noticed that he is so not self-centered. Look what he says. His first thoughts when he's suffering, about his suffering, is not about himself. He thinks about the whole palace guard, first the guys that are right there by him, and then he says all the rest, everyone else that doesn't know Christ. And then he thinks about all his brothers. Notice the two categories of the people affected by his suffering besides himself. Unbelievers and believers. The unbelievers learn about the gospel through his suffering. They watch Paul. They're they're keeping an eye on him. Like he's weird, short, fat, ugly. But more than that, he's just joyful, which is weird. In this suffering, he's weird. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, Why do the righteous suffer? Why not? He replied. They're the only ones who can take it. The way that we, as believers, respond to suffering is the most powerful witness in this world that there is truth in the gospel. It's so powerful when you see a brother or sister suffering and they just are so happy and glorifying God, choosing to do what's right, choosing to honor God. It's like, man, this is real. If Christians can endure and thrive when others fail and fall, we prove that what is in us is not natural but supernatural. And believers are the second group that Paul ministered to. 
they're encouraged to speak the gospel with more boldness through his suffering. His suffering actually helps them to not be afraid. His example of trusting God and being used by God through all of his suffering causes other believers to think, I could trust God too, maybe. I could be used by God too, maybe. I mean, after all, look at Paul. He's the chief of sinners. He's short, bald, and ugly. I don't even have that going against me. When they looked at Paul, they didn't see these amazing gifts. They didn't see that Paul was the super Christian. They saw that he was broken, weak, and not particularly skilled in any one way. And so there are no special talents needed for suffering. When they see him suffering, they think, I could suffer too. Only faith makes a difference in how you suffer. How you suffer. Only faith makes a difference. There are no better sufferers, more naturally gifted sufferer. Oh, he's just a Debbie Downer. Which brings us to thinking lesson number three. Suffering will not be good for your reputation. So if you care about your reputation, you probably shouldn't follow Christ. We read this in verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So there were some people that looked down on Paul because he was suffering. They would look at him and be like, Paul, what good are you in prison? If you really were making God happy, he would break you out. You know what? So you must just be not that important. But Paul was so humble that he just thanked God that they were talking about Jesus. He didn't care. Their competitiveness led them to be prideful, and Paul was so humble that he was just like, okay, you win. You, you be used by God out there. I'll stay in here. You go out there and preach the gospel. How about that? A.W. Tozer writes this powerful piece about rebuking the attitude of competition that's common among people in ministry. He says this. It's actually a prayer. He says, Dear Lord, and it uses a lot of big words, so bear with me. Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts. Very well. That is not in their power nor mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and for my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory such modest gifts as I possess. I will not compare myself with any, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where 
I may excel in one work or another. I herewith make a, make a blanket disavowal of all intrinsic worth. Uh, that, is, that is not what we teach our kids in elementary school today. You know what? Make a blanket disavowal of all your intrinsic worth. First of all, they wouldn't understand any of those words. But you guys do. But I am an unprofitable servant. I, am, I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of thy, thy people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not even want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own if it is thine own. For what is thine is mine. And while one plants another, another waters, it is thou alone that gives the increase. Boom. Now you all feel smarter. So then, suffering will hurt your pride. It will keep you from living a self-sufficient life. And that's the design of it. When we're on that football team and we run the play and we score the touchdown, the crowd will cheer for the coach that made such an awesome play call. Not for us. But our response will also be joy when we suffer because joy is the result of choosing to humbly accept and embrace suffering. Joy is the result of not caring about being happy, but caring about God's gospel being preached, God's plan, God's play call. We're going to do that. But you cannot have this joy if you're always trying to get out of your suffering and you'd rather have an easy life than a life of boldly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your team doesn't need you to give up. They need you to give all you have on this play, this one play, for all the marbles, you could say. And this is thinking lesson number four. Number four, suffering isn't forever. It's one play. One play. Suffering isn't forever. Verse 19, Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I will be delivered at the right time. At the right time. It might be in this life, or I may die here, but I will be delivered, he says. He might be released or he might be martyred, and he doesn't get to choose which one of those it is. He doesn't get that choice. That's up to the play caller. But he knows that he will not be put to shame because he trusts in the Lord, which he wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 11 where he wrote, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, he knows, Paul knows with all boldness that, that if he trusts and believes in Jesus, Jesus will use his life or maybe his death the way that Jesus wants to. And Jesus doesn't make mistakes. That's what Paul trusts. And so if we get thrown in jail, Jesus is going to use it. That's why we have total victory over this world, because they can't do anything that God does not want. How did Paul get here? How did he get so much faith and so much boldness so that while he's in prison, he's just like, oh, life or death, I'm, I'm good, whatever. I read that sometimes and I'm like, that's great for Paul, but I'm not there yet. I don't know if I would respond in that way to that kind of suffering. But he tells us how he got there. He says, by prayer. By prayer. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was changed by prayer. It made him different. When we are suffering, it is so important to pray. Before we suffer, it's so important to pray. And to get everyone you know to pray with you and for you. It's not a rule to get God to help you. It's just a way, the way that the body brings health and strength to itself. The nerves of your body won't be able to supply Spencer. You broke your toe. Yes, I did. Yes, you did. And it was ugly. Yes, that did. picture just made me... <laughs> it was gross looking, right? Okay, now, your nerves in your foot sent little messages to your brain that said, we need some healing power down in the foot. So your brain started the process of sending the white blood cells down, told you to go to the doctor, you go get it all checked. I don't know, did you go to the doctor? Okay, good. So if Spencer's nerves would have not prayed, his body would have never begun the healing process. But they prayed. They sent messages. Beep, beep, beep. They did. Lots of messages, right? Lots of them. Lots of them. Were they quiet messages? Oh, no, no. No. They were like, Lord, help us! Right? That's pretty much what they were. Why don't we pray like that when we suffer? We can. The, it's not getting... Uh, your brain is totally willing to help. But if you have leprosy and your nerves don't work, then it doesn't know that you're hurt, Right? Okay. Leprosy, by the way, is a disease that affects your nerves, speaks of sin, that keeps us from praying. Oh, man, so works so, so many levels. Okay. <sighs> Prayer. It changed Paul. That's the, and, it, and it got the supply from the brain to go down to this broken foot. When we pray, 
It gets the supply of the Spirit flowing into our life. That brings healing. The Spirit is made available to us by asking. Now, did God send you His Spirit when you got saved? Yes. Now, do you live 100% in that Spirit? No. We need more. We need it to flow all the time. And sometimes we need a special help if we're hurting, if we're suffering. We need something special from the Spirit. And God says, ask Pray, ask. In Luke chapter 11, verse 9, we read this so many times, but it's so important for us to get the point that we got to ask. He says, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will open. Those speak of three different ways that you're just seeking God and asking him. doesn't matter how you do it, asking, seeking, knocking, whatever. Just go to God. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Doesn't matter how you come to me, just come to me. And if a son asks for bread from his fa- any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, would he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, Paul said, how did I get to be this awesome apostle, able to suffer in just this miraculous way? He said, I prayed, I begged, I yelled at God, saying, help me, help me, send me the supply of your Holy Spirit. I need you, I need you, I need you. And that is what made God... Our country says that that's a weak man that always is asking for help. Once you man up, just buck your way through suffering. God says, don't be an idiot. I'm bringing suffering into your life so that you give up trying, so you give up your own self-made man efforts. See our study on Esau and Jacob for more information on that. This gets us to thinking lesson number five. I'm trying to go fast. Suffering is needed. You cannot do away with suffering. If you're suffering, guess what? You're doing it right. Now, suffering isn't necessarily great or fun, but it's beneficial. And he says this in verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, which is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for the progress of your joy and faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Both will involve suffering. Get this. Both will. Living is going to be full of suffering. Pain, troubles, trials, sorrows, labor for others. Labor, if you're a woman. Death. 
Death also has its suffering. But death's suffering is just for a moment. And then it's all over and you're with Jesus. So death is better by far. He says, if I live, this is what it's going to mean. It's going to be fruitful labor for you. It's good for you. I can serve, I can teach, I can minister to you guys. You get more joy. You make more progress in the faith. You have more abundant rejoicing. Those are all the things he listed there of what would be good if he stayed. And then he says, if I die, I get to be with Jesus. That's really what I want. My work would be over. My party would begin. It's better by far for me. Okay. Do you see the relationship there between the two? Suffering ends when I die, yet suffering gets me to death in a victorious and fruitful way. Suffering ends when I die, but it gets me to death in a victorious and fruitful way. There are no shortcuts in the life of a believer. Suffering is needed. We need to be hard-pressed, he said, on every side, like Paul was hard-pressed. We need a strong desire to be with Jesus in heaven, and yet we need a deep love and concern for our, our brothers and sisters and the believers that are here on earth and are serving them and are ministering to them needs to be just as powerful in our hearts. Without these two pressures in our hearts, we lose our strength and will to fight. And that's what suffering could do if you don't think right. How many people do you know broken by suffering? They are a shell of a person because they did not know how to respond to suffering. They didn't have a plan. We need those two pressures. We need to know it's going to come to an end. And we're going to be with Jesus. But while we're here, we need to suffer and serve the living daylights out of our brains. Whatever. (laughs) Warren Wearsby tells us this story about Spurgeon. On a wall in his back, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque with Isaiah 48.10 on it, which says, I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. And Spurgeon said, It is no mean thing that to be chosen of God, he wrote. God's choices, God's choice makes chosen men choice men. Try to say that ten times fast. We are chosen, not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted. Glory is consumed, yet his here in the furnace, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. So we have our application right here. Before we get to thinking lesson number six, he puts in the application first. Verse 27. The application is, by the way, When we think rightly about suffering, we won't be paralyzed by fear. 
When we think rightly by suffering, about suffering, we won't be paralyzed by fear. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We need to live how a person would live if they knew that this was their last day and everything they did mattered. That's a great way to think about suffering. An atheist once told William Booth, William Booth is a guy who found his Salvation Army. He said, if, if I believed what you Christians say you believe about a, a coming judgment and how people who don't believe in Jesus will go to hell and that all they need to do is accept what Jesus did on the cross and turn their lives over to him. He said, if I really believed all that, I would crawl on my bare knees on crushed glass all over London, warning men day and night to repent of their sin and turn to Christ, who is their only place of refuge. An atheist said that. Paul says that's what being in the same mind and of the same spirit means. It's all about living to share the gospel with people, not about keeping the Ten Commandments, although keeping the law will come completely naturally when you're focused on Jesus. That's the beauty of the new covenant. When we're all of the same mind and the same spirit, and we don't care about anything except Jesus and telling people about Jesus, man, it's not a church that's like, well, let me put some laws on you and put some restrictions on you and make sure that you are doing what we want you to do and look the way we want you to look and all these legalistic restrictions. We don't have to worry about it. We have one thing we care about, one spirit, and the spirit of Jesus is all, and that spirit makes us holy makes us live a life. And then we're free. And nobody ever complains about your church being legalistic when all you talk about is Jesus and what Jesus did. Amen. Right. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So the single Greatest way to live a life worthy of the gospel. He's not, he's not putting rules and saying, oh, for you to live worthy of the gospel, you need to sell everything and go live homeless on 16th Street. Be a weirdo. He's not saying that. He's saying the single greatest way for you to live a life worthy of the gospel is to not be afraid of your adversaries. Not be afraid, but love them through Christ. When you are not afraid of what they could do to you and the way they treat you, it proves two things. It proves, number one, they're going to hell, which they fear. And number two, it proves you are going to heaven, which they can't fathom. Arguing doesn't accomplish these two things. You can't convince them they're going to hell by arguing with them. But when you love them and you're not afraid of what they could do to you, it convinces them. It's like magic. We have a secret formula that works. 
I'm going to love Jesus more than I'm scared about what you could do to me. Wow. Holding picket signs doesn't accomplish these two things. Having a rock band or powerful speakers at your church doesn't accomplish these two things either. Only love. Love that's not afraid of getting hurt. How about that? Love that's not offended by their sin, but offers a remedy and a way to change. Love that's willing to teach them about grace. It does more than you and I would ever realize when we just trust the Lord. We just love people. So then we get now to our last thinking lesson. Thinking lesson number six. Suffering is a gift. We need to think this way. Suffering is a gift. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear that is in me. I hear some say, and I I have said it myself, I hope my kids don't go through the things that I went through when I was growing up. You heard that? You maybe said that? I want to read something to you by, uh, written in Fortune magazine by this guy named William Batten. When the Emperor Valens threatened Eusebius with confiscation of all his goods, torture, banishment, and even death, the courageous Christian replied, He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment, banishment whose home is heaven, nor torments whose body can be destroyed with one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. When I hear my friends say they hope their children don't have to experience the hardships they went through, I don't agree. Those hardships made us who we are. You, can't, you can be disadvantaged in many ways, and one way may be not having had to struggle. You guys know the story of the little baby bird and how the mother bird saw her baby struggling to get out of the egg. And so the mother bird helped the baby through the struggle. And then the baby came out of the egg and the mother bird kicked him out of the nest and he fell and splat, dead. Why? Because he wasn't strong. That mother bird was dumb because it didn't let its child go through that struggle. He didn't let them grow in strength. And so when it was time to fly, the baby bird went splat. That could have been the name for our study. The baby bird went splat. That would have been good. Man, missed opportunity. Subtitle, yes, colon. (laughs) Do you remember Anchor Group this week? Oh my gosh. We laughed very hard at Anchor Group this week. Okay. (sighs) The way Paul suffered should not seem strange to us. It should be the same life lived by all of God's people. But why does it seem so foreign to us Americans? Because we are weak people who are accustomed to comfort and luxury. 
And when someone suffers these days, there are hushed whispers of shock and disappointment. Helplessness and sorrow. Oh, they're suffering. Oh. oh, if God loved them, he would get them out of that egg. No. No. We're not going to take the foolish, short-sighted, philosophy that says suffering is bad all the time because it's not now is it god's perfect plan in the future in heaven no but in this world yes it is part of god's plan instead of rejoicing that we're counted worthy to suffer we weep that we've been chosen to suffer And maybe this is a change that needs to happen in your life. And maybe you know that you've been making choices to insulate yourself from suffering at every turn. Uh, I, don't, I don't have relationships because people are jerks. I always end up suffering when I get close to someone. That is not the heart of God. But you don't understand how I've been hurt. I don't care. Love. Open yourself up for relationships. I know it's scary, but do not fear. This is about God's glory, not your comfort. God's kingdom. These people that God has placed in your life, your family and your friends who you don't want to talk to, God put you in their life because no one else is chosen but you. You are the one chosen. People are like, I don't know what my calling is in this world. I don't know what God wants me to do. Hang out with someone and love them. But that's not what I want to do because it's scary because they might bite me. Oh man, so many times I've heard, I'm not good at relationships. And it's so sad. It's such a failure to understand Christ in Scripture. He didn't ask anyone to be good at anything. Thank you, Norm. He asked us to lay down our lives, pick up our cross, and follow Him. That means he put you in a family so that you'll talk to them. He put, you, he put you at your job so you'll be a light and speak to them. And this is, the, this is not optional. If you want to live your life and waste it and never talk to anyone, never develop any relationships, you're just like the person who walks through that football game, gets called onto a team, and you just lay down and do nothing. And the team is walking all over you and you're like, this hurts, I hate church, church sucks, I ain't going to church. Get up. Get involved in the play call. Oh gosh, okay, we're done. <laughs> so thinking lesson number one was suffering is real. You don't have to pretend it's not. Number two, suffering is not primarily about you, so grow up. Number three, suffering will not 
will not be good for your reputation. So don't think you're going to be popular. Number four, suffering isn't forever. Five, suffering is needed. And six, suffering is a gift. So when we think rightly about all this suffering, we're not going to be paralyzed by fear. When we realize what's really truly going on, we have a chance to succeed. Suffering is here. And if it's not here in your life, it's coming. Guess what? Something's going to happen bad. How are you going to think about it? Are you ready? Are you scared? Now, I never said through this whole thing to just rejoice like a weirdo that you're suffering. That's not what I mean. The Bible says suffering is real. It can, it can be pretty bad. But it, it's necessary and powerful and all the other things we learn too. And so don't fear suffering, but rather embrace it and run towards Jesus. Yeah. He is the God of all comfort. This Holy Spirit's name is the great comforter. He knows that it can be tough, but you have to run to him and trust him. Got it, guys? Amen. Let's all stand up. We got a, a time of communion and, and one more song that we're going to sing. I know it's been a long Bible study and service, but we're good. And I do not want you to forget about the picnic next Saturday at 4 p.m. Come early and help us set up. We will have tents. We will have yard games for the kids and other cool stuff, which I'm not going to tell you about. You have to come to see it, to learn about it. All right. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. In our suffering, you are always faithful. You are always there with us, right by our side. You have chosen us to be a light to this world. And, and Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the supply of your spirit to be what we need to be. We pray for Spencer's toe, that it would be healed. And Lord, thank you for giving us an example through Spencer's toe to teach us all uh, how to call out to you and cry out for help. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.